Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. You're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, in which we are discussing Thomas Hardy's novel, Tess of the Durvilles. Uh, we are going to discuss phase three, phase the third, uh, which I've, goes through chapter 24, I believe. Yeah, chapter 24 is the end of that section. Because we're a little bit short on time, I'm not going to, no small talk this time. We're just going to dive right in. You know, hopefully you're all doing well. Hopefully everyone out there is doing, is doing great. But we're just going to dig right in. This is a section uh, where Tess and Angel Claire's relationship blossoms, I guess. She goes to be a dairy uh, milkmaid, what do they call it, at, at this farm. And she meets Angel. And by the end of it, they are more than friends. Um, I think that's the, 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 the uh, one-line summary of this section. At the end of your section here, Karen, you have several questions, which I think actually, I mean, I, I, the way I said that makes it sound like all the questions you ask aren't worth asking. But there's a couple of questions here that I think are particularly worth uh, ask, us asking because of where our conversation has gone so far in the first few episodes. So I want to turn to those. But first, but first, I have to turn to a text message that Heidi sent me earlier. And it's, it's about Angel. Because Heidi, we were texting about the book a little bit, just like kind of just offhand. And she said that Angel is insufferable. <laughs> she said, I hate him. <laughs> so I want to open up the floor for us conversation about this guy because he obviously is our like, he's a central character now. He is, if we don't have a good grasp on what we think of him and what the book thinks of him and what we're supposed to think of him, then I, don't, I feel like we can't talk about this section or the rest of the book. And there are several questions here uh, in your list, uh, Karen, which, which address, address him directly. But I want to let Heidi address that confession directly because she says, Angel is insufferable. I hate him. I did say that. I want to hear why. And then I want to hear if Karen, how you think about him. Yeah. So you're, I can't back down from that because that was a very, very direct Quote. Uh, opinion statement that I made to you. <laughs> yeah, I have a screenshot um, if you deny it. Yes, no, <laughs> it's true. I I will not deny it. Um, I don't. I don't like how he idealizes tests. I I dislike hmm. that strongly. You know, it's funny because we, we began this conversation with the three of us talking about our experiences with the book. And Karen, you teach this in undergrad. I took it. I, I read this book in an undergrad class as a college student and I remember it pretty vividly, but I have a very, very different impression of this young man as an adult woman, as a middle-aged adult woman than I had as a young idealistic college student. I remember thinking it was kind of dreamy when I was mm -hmm. 19 reading this book. And now in my forties, I just want to gag a little bit just because of the intense idealization tests as an object of desire rather than as a person. She represents something to him. And I dislike that a lot. Like I, I find everything in me, it just kind of like makes my skin crawl because I think because of our inside view 
as readers of what she's been through and our deep sense of her humanity and personhood and the utter lack of um, love and care that she's received from anybody else. And then here comes here comes this young man who has the potential to be very healing to her and instead only sees her through his own kind of wish fulfillment glasses. And that just makes me want to punch him right in the neck. That's my honest assessment. <laughs> Karen, how do you feel? And has your, and has your opinion on him changed as you've read this book more? It's, you know, and again, I'm trying to be very careful here because it's hard, you know, not to carry all the things that we haven't gotten to yet mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. in, into this. So, but I, but there is enough here um, and Heidi's already highlighted a lot of it that we know, you know, even if we've only read this far about his character. And I like to just begin with, um, when talking about Angel Claire, begin with his name, um, because all of the names in Hardy and and in this novel, especially, are are meaningful. So, so his name, and I probably it's probably in the notes somewhere or whatever. But um, you know, his name is Angel. He plays. He literally plays a harp. <laughs> um, and his last name, Claire. You know, it means clarity or light. So, like he's he's an angel of light. And so, yes, we can look at this the way. 19 year old Heidi would look at it like, oh, he's so, he really is an angel. He really is dreamy. Or we can look at it with a more realistic lens as more mature people and say, hmm, you know, something, something's not quite right. I mean, I, I, I almost can't say his name without saying it like Angel Claire with some, you know, irony in it. Um, and, and so it, yeah, everything that Heidi said is true. But of course, what's really interesting and where, you know, Hardy doing what Hardy does so well um, is he complicates these characters. And again, he'll complicate Angel later on. But if we, I, I think we really need to talk about what Hardy tells us about Angel's sort of religious disposition and his worldview, his philosophy. So can we talk about that? Because it's so important. Yeah. Not only for who he is, but what happens later. So, yeah. Do you, do you want to just, Go off. You want to do that now? <laughs> sure, How, sure, you have the floor. Sure. Um, so a lot of this is in chapter 18 of um, phase the third, um, where we find out about Angel's background, um, you know, his family. And it's helpful, too, to just kind of understand that. Well, first of all, that and and I don't remember if this is said specifically in this part. It's not a big spoiler, but but Angel's father is an evangelical. Um, so within you know, e even if it's, if that's not named yet, I mean, this is the, the evangelical movement was very you know, very prominent and influential and controversial um, in 18th and 19th century England. Um, and so, if, if you're a person like Hardy who distrusts Christianity anyway, you're really going to be more cynical um, and distrustful of the evangelicals. Sounds familiar, right? Um, I am one, so I can say that. Um, and so, so Angel comes from this sort of, you know, from a Calvinistic strain, so stricter, evangelical. Um, that's his father's background. His father is a clergyman. And Angel is supposed to, like all young men of, of means, go to university to study 
to be in the church. Um, An angel has kind of the integrity to not do that because he he can't affirm all of the church's teaching and and that goes in that gets into detail. And so angel is supposed to be he is and is supposed to be in this novel a sort of, you know, progressive renegade, someone who's thoughtful, critical. He's not just accepting his father's faith. Um, And because he isn't, he's going to make his own way and do something different, which is to go and learn farming. Is he a proxy for Hardy himself? I was just about to ask that question. I, I think, I think religiously and philosophically, yes. I think more biographically. um, So definitely yes, but but there's a closer um, proxy in Jude and Jude the Obscure hmm. uh, because okay. that character is actually a, 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 an architect and stonemason as Hardy was. So. so there's something like he probably recognized something in him in himself or what he wanted to be or thought of himself as, even if he then changes the direction of it in terms of yeah. Angel. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, but do you, so just to summarize, do you feel as strongly negatively toward him as Heidi does? It's okay if not. I'm no, really... Because I, 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 I imagine there's a lot of readers who feel... And I'm and I, the reason I bring that up again is because he does have this renegade streak about him, mm-hmm. which seems similar mm-hmm. to Hardy. And mm-hmm. yet there is this... He has this sort of warped, idealized view of Tess. And as we go through the book, he makes some decisions that are make him less desirable as a human. Um, and so is the, how is the book asking us to think about him is, an, is the reason I bring this up again. I think at this point, the, the book is asking us to uh, be smitten with him in the same way all of the dairy maids are and, and to, um, to be impressed with his, his, uh, you know, his progressive views. Um, and yet Hardy gives us enough information and throughout, we've, we've looked at this before, enough sort of commentary from this omniscient narrative point of view that to know, um, although I think first time readers, maybe or at least as a, when I was a first time reader and as Heidi was, you know, maybe we don't see it as, as clearly as Hardy offers to us um, that Angel is seeing her through his own you know, idealized his own. Yeah. An angel is as ideal as you can get. And, uh, and, uh, angel sees Tess through his rose colored glasses. Go ahead, Heidi. You look like you want to say yeah, something. I, in general, this is personal preference and probably both of you know that this about me, I prefer my heroes a little bit more broody. I'm not all about the <laughs> idealistic, you know, like crusaders. I find those types exhausting in general. Um, so, uh, but he does have this appeal to your point. I think you're bringing up a really important point that I, I think we are supposed to see red flags, but he's definitely he's definitely meeting an ideal within the Victorian age, even about a man, right. That he is. uh, And, and especially in this section, there's so much of this, these pastoral overtones uh, of, of, of how heroic it is for him to reject the city life and, um, and, and maintain himself as a gentleman with a rich intellectual life, with all of the reading and his education uh, and his principles that he is sticking to 
too, in spite of his family pressure for him to become a clergyman, that he's, you know, brave enough to kind of risk uh, his reputation and go out there and fight for what he believes in and stand for something. And so I, I, I think it probably adds to the experience of reading the novel to see him through those eyes. He Mm -hmm. is directly contrasted with Alec at this point in the narrative. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. It, it, he he is um, for all the reasons that you said, and and in particular having to do with like money and family. Like Alec is a is nouveau riche. He's sort of a, an imposter stealing a family name and stealing their not stealing, but you know just pretending to be um, part of a, of a of an old family. And Angel is you know his is striking it out on his own, and and, and rather than living an aristocratic life he's living a pastoral life um so that contrast is 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 set up very strongly i'm so you've mentioned the word irony a couple times and it it's kind of struck me that there seems to be a bit of an ironic detachment almost on hardy's part like the perspective of the narrator because you do get we're inside of Claire's head, Angel's head, as he's thinking about Tess. Then sometimes you get this more omniscient narrator where they're talking about how their their courtship is kind of happening and like the way they're coming together, and you know, like this narration of the natural world. And then suddenly it seems like you're back inside one of this character's head. Do you agree that it seems like the, the, the narrator is has the sort of ironic detachment that Hardy's playing with? Um, that's kind of one of the driving factors of the drama, or am I just kind of like overthinking that? No, I think that's definitely true, and I think that's kind of the you know part of the trick is is as we're reading is to figure out you know where is Hardy speaking and where is he letting his character speak? Yeah, or think. It, it does in order to understand how the book works and what the book is trying to say, do you have to be able to identify the differences between those two? I mean, I, I think it definitely, the more you can, the more it helps. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that there's always so much difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I, we could probably get into like Thomas Hardy's narrative voice and someone could write a doctoral thesis on it. Probably someone probably has. So you have the first question in your phase, the third reflection questions on page 272 in these beautiful editions that you helped produce. You ask, why does Hardy title this part of the novel, The Rally? And that's, you know, probably worth at least addressing a little bit. Heidi, what's your take on that? I mean, I took it on face value that he's talking about her rallying from like coming back, like a comeback story. Is there something more to it than that? No, no, I, no, I don't think there's anything more than that. It's just, it is sort of, a, um, you know, an older phrase and it's just, right. you know, and so it's like, not like a rally, like, oh, we're having a rally at the courthouse. Uh, let's not yeah, do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's more of, you know, right. She is it's a comeback and she's rallying herself rallying herself. And it's just interesting because that's a very powerful, emotionally laden phrase. and. And again, to remind ourselves, this is a tragedy. And so the rally sets us up for the tragedy that's going to unfold because it makes it worse. Well, yeah. so you, you ask in question seven, as Angel pursues her, 
Is Tess active or passive? Mm. How would you characterize her in either of these terms throughout the story so far? Why might this be significant? We've talked about how she's been quite passive at times so far. And as she's rallying, one of the questions that I was thinking thinking about is, is she, is part of the rally her sort of, um, the renewal of like her as an individual, her personhood, her autonomy as a person and as a character um, and her agency within her relationships. Like how much is that part of this rallying? Because if she's also rallying in those ways, then how does, we know it's a tragedy. How does the, if you rally to the top, how does the fall later uh, happen? In other words, how much of it is her passivity or is it things that are happening to her? So far, she's been passive. Would you say that during this, how would you answer that question about this section? Heidi, I'll ask you first and then we'll let Karen jump in. Yeah, I think that one of the tragedy, one, one of the characteristics of really great tragedy, like well-crafted tragedy, is that the characters have opportunities to take different paths and throughout the throughout the story the trajectory of a story uh and and for one reason or another choose not to take the the path that actually would lead them to healing and instead kind of take this this path the the other way you know they go the other way and i think if if tess's um tragic flaw is her passivity, um, which is a very complex and wonderful tragic flaw for Hardy to choose, considering that the Victorian ideal was passivity for women. Um, then uh, she she certainly continues to choose to define herself by the men who are pursuing her in her life in this section. So even though we don't yet know how it's going to end, we do know that given the opportunity to be in this like robustly healing place, because it's definitely portrayed as an Eden, um, as a very paradisal kind of place, as, as, a, as a healthful, wholesome, invigorating place for this class of people, the same way that, you know, the Victorians thought they could go to like a watering place in England and, you know, get better there. Here is, this is her opportunity to get better. Um, and, and she does have some independence in going there. Uh, and then along the way, she meets this young man and, and, and defines herself again by his pursuit of her. And that's how we close this section. And I think that that's where we will see. Um, and so I would say expect then, since she hasn't broken the pattern to see kind of a, a similar tragedy coming from this pattern in her life. Yeah, I think that we could, you know, we could um, spend the whole hour in this phase looking at different passages where we can say, oh, Tess is being passive here. Tess is being a little more active here. I mean, it's just kind of woven throughout. And so I'll just point to a couple of places. It's, it's both and, right? She's really, she's in this 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 um position where she can and does exert herself and then she she doesn't um i would look at for example uh, in chapter 20 on page 240 when um angel insists on calling well i'll just read that paragraph um about angel's perspective of her 
It was then, as has been said, this is 240 if I didn't say that. It was then, as she has, as has been said, that she impressed him most deeply. She was no longer the milkmaid, but a visionary essence of woman, a whole sex condensed into one typical form. And by the way, that, that means like um, an ideal or a stereotype. Um, he called her Artemis, Demeter, and other fanciful names half teasingly, which she did not like because she did not understand them. Call me Tess, she would say askance, and he did. I mean, this is a powerful, for her to just say, call me Tess, call me by my name, um, that's powerful and important. Um, and uh, the, the second Actually, two two quick things to that I would add to this passive versus um, active characterization of tests. Um, the next one is just the I and, and this is about other things too. But this whole thing about the butter not churning, right? That's mm. a myth, a superstition. Um, and and, yeah. and in in this book, do myths and superstitions sort of reflect what's going on, or do they predict what's going on? It's kind of it's kind of ambiguous. But here's something: if this is if this is fate or something beyond Tess's control, then this is not her being active. And then there's so much to say about the final scene of this is this space so we can say more but i'll just say when when you know when angel wants to carry tess across the water um she really tries hard for him not to do that mm-hmm. um in a very you know in a very uh, gentle maybe even you know reluctant or coy way but um he he does end up doing that so i would say that's a good scene to look at and, and examine you know how passive or active she is so we can do that. Heidi, what do you think of that scene? Like, how do you read her passivity? And then how, what does that tell us about Angel? Uh, are we, we're talking about the, the scene when he carries her, not the final yeah. scene. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just, I agree with Karen. I think that we see his pursuit of her, which ends up overriding her voice. And, but he does so benevolently because he claims he can't help himself because he loves her so very much, which is exactly what Alec said, right? Those are the same, it's the same excuses. It's the same claim. It's just, so, so I think we are invited to see these patterns and yet they're put into, I mean, this is how Hardy's so brilliant, right? I may not find this guy very attractive, but most women at the time were going to think he's dreamy, right? And so that is such an invitation to us, such a challenge to us through Hardy. Are you going to see the same things in this young man that you saw and who was clearly the villain at the beginning? And will the results be the same? Um, and uh, and yet, if you do find this guy dreamy, you're rooting for him, right? Which, which is, an, again, another challenge um, to us on Hardy's part. What I can't tell from this section, I'm really curious what the two of you think of uh, this. What I cannot tell is whether, um, I mean, there's all these references reminding the readers, we are never allowed to forget that Tess is no longer a virgin. That I mean, that's like on every other page, right? Um, and... Yeah. Um, it's very clear from the narrator's voice, 
whoever the narrator is at any given time, that the narrator does not blame Tess for it. She's blameless. However, what I cannot tell is, does the narrator truly believe that she has damaged goods, even though it's not her fault? Or does the narrator think that it's only a perception on the part of uh, the society and the people? What is what it, what do you think about this? Karen, do you have any thoughts on this? I can't tell. No, I I I really think that um this is Hardy's critique of his society. So I'd love I'd love to see if you if you've come across the passages where it seems um unclear. Um yeah, we could look at whose voice or whose perspective is being portrayed there. Um, and I think a lot of times it's 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 Tess herself, the way she sees herself. Um, but I think Hardy is is, you know, he's he's considering her to be a child of nature in the last phase. I don't think we looked at this passage, but there's a there's a point. Uh, when she's talking to her mother, I think it's the narrator um, said, or, or it's the mother's thoughts through the narrator where she's saying, well, she just did what nature, you know, has us do. So uh, there's, you know, there's no great uh, wrong in it. Um, hmm. And so I think that's really what Hardy's perspective is. Um, Heidi, can you go back and say your question one more time? Just like summarize it as. Yeah, I can't tell if. In spite of the fact that the narrator does not blame Tess for no longer being a virgin, I can't tell if the narrator at any given point as Hardy or whatever he's speaking, whatever voice is speaking, believes that Tess really is, uh, that her loss of her virginity has changed her ontologically and she is now no longer a pure woman, even though it's not her fault, or whether the narrator only thinks that's a perception of society. Um, I actually think that there's a third way here. What's I think, that? I think it's a dramatic. Uh, there's a it's a dramatic tension. Like I think it's preparing us for it to matter later dramatically. Because if it's if it's conscious, if it's on our mind, then when it inevitably does become, uh, well, I don't know how much to say. <laughs> when it does come up again and be extremely important, I think that we have sort of been at, prepared. I mean, I think those are the both of those other two things or, or mm. one of them could be true. But I also think dramatically every time he drops it into the story, we're reminded mm. that she knows this, but no one else this does. This isn't going and to go away. Is not yeah. gonna, it's not going to go away for her. And so, and thus it's creating a tension. There's like a dissonance between, between yes, part of that is the, the dissonance comes from the fact that the society has an expectation for her. And we know that, she is not in keeping with that expectation anymore. And, and then it, the added tension is that it's not through any fault of her own, you know? So that those, those tears of tension all kind of play together and pile on one another. And, but I think that he is really readying us as a writer for the, you know, this, this key, I'll just say it, there's this key dramatic plot point <laughs> that the whole book kind of flips on or is centered on relating to that. And I think he has to keep it around, but he, but it, he also is able to comment, comment on the society and put us inside of her head and all that at the same time. But I think one of the things that he does really well as a writer is those things are never just commentary. They also are 
the storytelling. And even though he is opinionated as a writer, that's another thing Heidi and I were talking about. He is very opinionated as a writer. And sometimes I, that bugs me. <laughs> uh, but, but so much of that opinion also, that detachment also is like dramatic force, I think. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why this, this book we're still reading at 135 years later or whatever it is. But I don't know if that really solves the problem mm-hmm. out there, Heidi. No, I think that that's, I think that's a great, um, it's a good reminder that, and, and, and it really goes along, I think, with the title of this section, the rally, that, that there is still this sense of this haunting. Um, I think to rally from. Yeah, I think that's right. Karen, do you want to add to this? Well, I just want to pick up on a point that you made about how even his, you know, everything he does is woven into the plot. And um, and so what I wanted to point out about this, you know, this really memorable scene of uh, it's, it's just one to me, the scene of him. And I think, you know, when my when I teach this, my students, uh, most of my students say the same thing, that this this scene just really stands out. It's just beautifully um, set up and portrayed. Um, But it's it's just Cardi could have done anything. He could have made something like this happen in any way. But it's significant that, you know, the um, the girls are going to church um mm-hmm. because that is what they do and angel is not going to church right mm-hmm. because that he doesn't do that and so it's just it, it's it doesn't you know you just kind of take it at face value uh, because it's how the event unfolded but it's also so meaningful um because because angels has rejected the church and um and yet they're these girls are on their way there. They're part of this society and part of this culture and not really thinking about it. Um, and, um, and then this event happens. Uh, I just think it's a good example of, of the many levels of Hardy's genius. And I think even using a river is clever. I mean, there's so many different ways that rivers mm-hmm. show up in literature and almost any of them could be like, you could make a case that any of them were on his mind when he was doing this. Like you could see him thinking, you know, about, the river sticks or Moses or baptism or like, there's so many different things that you could imagine him kind of enjoying while he's putting that scene together. And even the sense that like he is carrying her above the water, you know, mm-hmm. it's like an inversion of a baptism type of story. And there's just so many ways that rivers play in literature as an, as an image. Um, the sticks thing kept coming to mind for me. Um, and that's probably a bit of a stretch, but also, I mean, such are literary, literary images, right? <laughs> one book begets one reading begin begets the next. <laughs> um, but do you, so do you guys read him here as being, you talked about Tess being idealized by him. Is he being idealized here by Hardy or by these, well, certainly by the, like some of these women, <laughs> um, and how, how does the book treat him here? Like, are we supposed to be like, oh, this is so gallant. This is so chivalrous, at least at this point. And then he is setting us up to feel something about him later. Uh, Hardy is setting us up to feel something about Claire later. Or because when I read him here, you know, in, in some stories, it's, you know, Romeo and Juliet. And he's, you know, you don't, you don't kind of mock him. But I, I don't know. I wasn't sure how I'm supposed to feel about his, this action here. He's definitely trying to get, get on her good side. And it feels very like... It feels, I don't know that I would describe what he's doing here as chivalrous. 
I think he's very sincere. Um, this is who he is. This is you. Know, he he is a romantic, capital hmm. R romantic, um, and that 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 is who he is. Um, so whether we like that or not, <laughs> yeah, personal taste maybe. <laughs> right. I think that's true. I think we're supposed to like him a lot here in this section. I think we're supposed to see him as a hero. Uh, and, and then Hardy complicates it as Karen keeps mm -hmm. rightfully saying and accurately saying, I think that that's, a, I think that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he's a very ideal Victorian hero, progressive Victorian hero. Um, and, and so I, I do think we're supposed to see this as chivalrous, um, and romantic in the sense that it was all for her. And I think we're supposed to have this sense of triumph on her behalf that she is more desirable to him than all these other young women um, and see that as evidence of his true regard and attachment for her. Um, and because he, it's not that she's the only woman around. He has his choice of, of other like simple peasant women and somehow it's Tess that he gives his heart to. And that's, um, that's, I think, meaningful and intentional on Hardy's part. Um, and it, uh, I think that does several things. One, it puts this contrast an ironic contrast is I think one of your footnotes, uh, says Karen, um, in, in the edition that his, his idealization of Tess is so much related to her, um, to her as a virginal, um, like specimen of, virginal womanhood right mm -hmm. and 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 she's the one who's not and that's her great secret but there are all of these other girls who are exactly what he thinks Tess is um in terms of their bodies but there's also all of these direct statements from Hardy in this section that Tess has a wisdom and a depth of soul that is missing in these other young women yeah. because of what mm -hmm. she's been through, mm -hmm. because she has suffered greatly and because she is rallying. Mm -hmm. um, and then this rally is evidence of her growing greatness of soul. And yet we have, again, this hero who, who has an ideal in his mind that if she doesn't meet, we're going to see how he responds to that. Right. But he should like, that's that I think is clear through the narration uh, of this section is that there is something in her that is beautiful and wise and strong because of this rallying experience and because of her great suffering that somehow he's missing as he's seeing her as some like, Artemis spirit of the wood or whatever. Now I, I want to throw a counter thought in there um, about her essence and, um, and what, well, her purity in that sense, because that's the word, that's the word that Hardy uses. And I'm not sure whether that Hardy, again, you know, whether Hardy sees her as pure because of what she's been through, or if it's just because of her nature, like the even going through what she went through um, with mm. with Alec, she still did not lose her purity because that is just her essence. And when we contrast this girl with the other girls, um, I mean, they're so they know what's going on. Right. I, I mean, there are several conversations they have where, where, where 
they're kind of, they're not, you know, they're not manipulative or scheming necessarily, I wouldn't say, but they, they, they are longing and they desire him and they're making bets on, you know, that, that Tess is going to get him. And she just, she's just oblivious to all of this. And she doesn't think that he would want her. Um, and she's not really yet pining for him. So there's a purity in her that I think is, is, I think Hardy presents as just part of her very nature before and after her, you know, her, the, this event, um, losing her virginity did not do anything to change her nature is what I think that Hardy would say, as opposed to these other girls. Um, and I did want to look at that passage on page 263 of chapter 23 um, after they, you know, they're, they're home that night and, yeah. and Hardy goes to great pains to show how these girls, I mean, there are a couple of things going on, but they are actually, they're really suffering yeah because you know they're hopeless passion like, yeah yeah i mean arriving feverishly yes yeah teenage girls suffer when their crush isn't returned and um under and the that, oppressiveness of an emotion <laughs> thrust on them by nature's cruel law yeah yeah and that see that's the kind of line that tells us this is hardy is saying something mm -hmm. more than just oh teenage girls you know feel yeah. sad when their crush isn't returned these girls are really hardy is pointing out that they are suffering because of kind of the place that that they are put in by cruel's nature cruel nature's laws and society because they can't do anything about they it's again, it's like it's like Pride and Prejudice. We've made several comparisons. Um, these girls are utterly dependent upon some man choosing them um, and uh, they aren't likely to have someone choose them. And here they are, four of them all vying for the attention of one. So the odds are, are not pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought a couple of times of uh, Lydia Bennett. Um in this section, they kind of, these girls kind of remind me, but I, so the thing about Angel is that does he, he, you're talking about how he, he, um, how do I think you said this? He is like sort of, um, I don't know if you, how you put it obsessed about her, like virginal purity or whatever. And yet she's not what he thinks she is, but he's also this person who is all about like, bucking against the systems and the norms and the traditions. And so he's not what she thinks he is or what he pretends to, or what we think he is. I mean, this is like, that's one of those dissonances that kind of reveals that he's a little more complex than like this sort of heroic, like William Blake figure or something. Right. Um, and that maybe he's a little more basic as the kids say. They say that, right? They still say that? No, no. I think so. I think they say <laughs> that. So do you, so then, so when we get a line like on 268, where it's um, right at the end of the section, another great, another great passage here. She doesn't know that Claire has followed her around and he's watching her. And then it says how very lovable her face was to him. Yet there was nothing ethereal about it. It all was real vitality, real warmth, real incarnation. And it was in her mouth that this culminated, eyes almost as deep in speaking as he, he had seen before, and cheeks perhaps as fair, brows as arched, a chin and throat almost as shapely, her mouth he had seen nothing to equal on the face of the earth. To a young man with the least fire in him, that little upward lift in the middle of her red top lip was distracting, infatuating, maddening. So then it goes on, and then at the end it says, it mentions an imperfection, and then it says on top of 269, 
And it was the touch of the imperfect upon the would-be perfect that gave the sweetness because it was that which gave the humanity. So what I'm curious about here is how does this play into what we're talking about here about how he thinks about her? Because it says here that the imperfection is what gives her the humanity, but he also does not yet know that she is not what he thinks she is. So maybe that imperfection, we're going to find out whether or not that imperfection, that sense of humanity is something he actually does care about. So then what I'm thinking about here is when it says um, there was nothing ethereal about it, all was real vitality, real warmth, real incarnation. Whose POV is that from? Are we getting Hardy there? Or are we getting Claire there, Angel Claire there? And does it matter how we're supposed to think about her like how it says his, this her face is very lovable to him and we know that she's beautiful but is this like vitality warmth incarnation is that tied to an a a um incomplete and rose-colored view of her that he has or is this something that hardy really believes about her and thus is something we're supposed to think about her how do you how karen how do you read that yeah, this is a great example of of a passage like we were talking about before, like we're getting Hardy's point of view and Angel's point of view. And it's hard to tell the difference. I mean, I think that I think and I think sometimes they merge. I think here Hardy is is describing Angel's real perception and feelings about her. I mean, as idealizing as Angel is, I mean, he's still a young man and he is uh you know he is infected and affected by this girl's beauty um and whether he whether he realizes it or not you know so i think i think this is definitely hardy telling us what's going on in angel um maybe what's less clear is does he you know is is angel aware of all these things so so this the irony that comes through these passages here and again it's hard to talk about this without just saying what happens later maybe one of the things we're thinking about is, is she as ethereal as he thinks she is? Like Hardy thinks she's beautiful, but are we supposed to think she's like actually like a goddess? Like is the book or, and then like, how does her sense of purity or lack thereof for the sake of conversation here within the terms of the world? Um, how does that play into the goddessless goddess like nature that at least he angel puts into it. i just think it's interesting the the varying perspectives on who she is um well, is I, I think the key is in the last part those last two sentences so uh the beginning at the bottom of 268 perfect he as a lover might have called them offhand that so he would say she was perfect and then I think it's the narrator who says, but no, they were not perfect. And it was a touch hmm. of the imperfect upon the would be perfect that gave the sweetness. So, so maybe, and I'm just, you know, I'm just looking at this closely because you asked about this passage. Um, Angel doesn't even recognize that it's the this, this touch of the imperfect that makes her so pure and beautiful. And there's a lot more I won't say right there, but that's, um, I think there's some we'll foreshadowing have to come, maybe here. Maybe come back to that. <laughs> yeah. So I've been having this conversation. I brought this up the other day on the Anna Karenina, or in our final Anna Karenina podcast. 
Uh, so some of our listeners might recognize what I'm about to say. So my husband has been, he's been listening to some business podcasts and, and talking to me about this con- new concept that's like really kind of taken his imagination by storm lately in terms of leadership at, at work. But I think it really works for psychology and in and, and a literary too. He's ta- he's, uh, some business podcast he was listening to is saying that there are four core motivations that people have uh, at work. And um, the first one is to be liked. The second one is to be right. The third is to win. And the fourth is to be comfortable. Uh, and and I think with Angel, we have somebody who just is entirely motivated by being right. And I don't mean that by triumphing over others and winning arguments, but in knowing what is good and pursuing it and having the ideal and chasing after it with every fiber of his being, with making whatever sacrifice is necessary in order to have the best of things, to believe the best things, to pursue the best things, to know the best things and to live by the best things. Right. Um, and, and so and all of the goodness and the wickedness that can come from that motivation is there and present. I think that his psychology is very, very consistent throughout. He's not rebelling against the church because he has a rebellious nature. He is, he's pursuing what he believes to be right, because that's the thing that motivates him. He wants to be right and he wants to do what is right. And then he wants to be rewarded for that. Right. And, and I think we see that. So he's not just like a rebellious progressive guy. He's just somebody who wants, who doesn't, who no longer can believe in the church. And so he's trying to do the right thing. And so of course he has that idealization of the woman that he desires that he thinks he loves. Right. He thinks she's the best of all of them. She's the best of the girls. She's the most ideal girl. She's the most beautiful girl. She's the most, she, she's gotta be the best, right? Um, the same way it's, he wants the best religion. He wants the best job. Now he's got to have the best girl. And so if in his mind, an ideal woman is a virgin, he is not going to compromise on that. And I think that we're looking and and that's what I think we're seeing here building, right? He is telling himself a story about Tess and, and that in many ways she embodies that. And what I think he's not seeing about her, and, and this is clear in the section, like this isn't a spoiler. I think that's, it's within this section for sure. He is not seeing the best of Tess because the best of Tess is this depth of soul that has come into her life because of her great battle against darkness, whatever that has looked like for her. And now she has a wisdom. Now she has a depth. Now she has kind of that, um, that, that gravitas, that gravitas, that a great souled person is on the cusp of becoming right. And, um, and, and, and what we see with Angel is he already has an ideal in his mind and he's decided that Tess meets that. So maybe that passage then that I read on 268, you can break up those sentences in point of view. Right. So exactly. how very lovable her face was to him is how he's thinking about it. But then the narrator is telling us there's nothing ethereal about it. It was real vitality, real warmth, real incarnation, but it was in her mouth that this culminated for him. And then that becomes the, that, oh, I lost you, Heidi. Were you saying something? 
Well, now I lost what I was to say, but I'm done. That's the end of my thought. So that like those Sorry, lines. Sorry, I was just I nodding vigorously because I agreed with you. <laughs> so my vigorous nodding ended up being distracting. So no, no, it's like it just me. froze for a second. Uh, Karen, were you going to say something there? You were. Uh, a, uh, like you were no, I was nodding too. I mean, I think I think that's exactly it. Is that um, that Angel is sort of mislocating the source of uh, of Tessa's. Uh, beauty and and warmth and charm and soul um and hardy or the narrator knows what that is okay before we go i want to talk about the very end here because we are being led to see the difference um between angel and alec because at the end here we get lines like this he had been on the point of kissing that too tempting mouth, but he checked himself for tender conscience sake. Or lines like, he had allowed her to free herself. And in a moment or two, the milking of each was resumed. Um, and so in, the, in lines like that, we get this stark difference between his behavior toward her and Alex's behavior toward her previously. And I just, I, I'm fascinated by the way he is. Like, these are cliffhangers, right? Like in a mystery novel, be like, I have to read the rest. And here he's setting us up to feel or expect, have certain expectations about a character. And then we're going to find out, we know Hardy is smart enough and talented enough to, to leave us questioning whether we can trust what we're actually seeing here. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a um, spoiler to say that much, but what that leads me to, cause I think that's pretty much clear. What, what that leads me to though is, back to poor Tessa's perspective because this poor girl is being like dragged through so much. And I, I want to think about how she views him and ask what you think. Has she been manipulated by him? Has he been dishonest with her about who he is to lead her to fall in love with him? Or is she rightly, is it, is it right that she is falling in love with him? I think the book is telling us, I think it's clear the book is telling us that, I mean, we know it's a tragedy, right? So this isn't going to probably end great, but has she been, has she been, has she been manipulated into, has, is he acting like this in order to win her, but in a way that is uh, false? I think, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a gentleman so that a woman <laughs> likes you more. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm putting it in very stark terms there. Like, you probably should be a gentleman to the woman you love, but is he being dishonest in who, about who he is? Yeah, Heidi, you're saying like, he's just, it's all about truth for him. Yeah. I don't think he's being dishonest and I don't think there's anything wrong with Tess falling in love with them. She's rightfully cautious uh, about her own past and also about the social distance between them. Um, but it's, it's relatively clear, even in this section, that he's, uh, that, that that's not an insurmountable social distance uh, for personal reasons for him and some reasons even within the culture. Like there's not, if he's going to be a farmer, it, it might, a gentleman farmer, it's not disgraceful for him to take um, somebody of a lower social social position and raise her up in that way. Um, it's it's a problem, but it's not insurmountable socially. Um, so I, there's nothing wrong at all. I don't think with with his portrayal of himself, hmm. or I think he just doesn't know himself. 
I don't think, mm. I, I think it's not that he's being deceitful. He's, he's not, not villainous Alec. like Alec was. No, yeah. he's not Alec, but he also, he doesn't know himself and he doesn't really know Tess. And, and I think that's probably true of every young couple in the land Right. So, um, you know, but, but you, you don't you, think that he's like, there's a degree to which he's like, oh, maybe we should talk about this later. I'm going to save this question. It's about passions. I'm going to ask it later in the future. Yeah. Karen, you go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say, you know, so I think Angel is sincere. I think that word is he uses that word um, when he's talking to her. And I think that he is acting in the way he thinks he should act and the way he wants to act toward her. And again, I see her innocence and purity and all of this in the sense that she's still, despite her growing, you know, attraction for him and fondness of him, which we can't blame her for. I see she still doesn't think that she, you know, that he would really want her or marry her. She says earlier, he would, you know, he, can't marry her. She just does, doesn't, this isn't even in her, um, you know, her conceptual frame. So there, mm. that's part of the innocence and purity that she still has. And even, and it translates kind of into a passivity because she doesn't know enough to say, oh, you know, I better put the, you know, put the brakes on this thing uh, before it goes too far. She doesn't even really know to say, to, to think that or say mm. it or take control of the situation in that way, because she doesn't really understand what's happening. Mm. We got to let you go. There's, there's so much to talk about. Um, Heidi, well, Karen, why don't you give some final thoughts in case you need to duck off? Um, I know you got another, another call to jump on. So if you want to add any final thoughts, um, then Heidi, you go there. I think uh, to give you a chance to think here, the end of 271, he begins with this, he ends the, he begins, he ends the chapter with this sentence, a veil had been whisked aside. The tract of each one's outlook was to have a new horizon thenceforward for a short time or for a long. And again, like he might as well be writing a mystery novel about such a cliffhanger. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I would just say again, this is the, I, I just love the way that Hardy names the, these phases. They're very aptly named. So this was the rally. And then the next one is the consequence and, you know, and the consequences could, there's a variety of possibilities for the consequence. Um, but even using that word consequence, points us back to the tragic nature of this because a tragedy um, is something that happens seemingly inevitably from a series of events that just, you know, one leads to the other. And so, um, so the consequences and consequence in the next phase we'll want to look for is kind of being the inevitable outcome of all of the, th the things that have happened so far. Mm. Heidi, your turn. Final thoughts. Karen, if you need to go, thank you so much. And we'll uh, talk to you next time if you need to duck off. Yeah, I'm very intrigued by this uh, whole idea of Angel being, as you said, like a proxy or a stand-in for Hardy himself. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really just kind of fascinated by it, especially knowing what's coming. Um, yeah, yeah. Because that's, that's exactly the have, question. If he's a proxy, yes. boy, does that raise right. some questions? And yes. So he's his indictment against Victorian society thus far uh, has been, I mean, really clear. Um, and so I'm very curious, and I would ask our our listeners to. Uh, to allow the complexity of this, if if Angel is a proxy for Hardy himself and the ideals that Hardy represents, 
the progressivism that that he wants to see unfold within Victorian society, um, then then what happens next becomes even stranger and more curious and complex. And so I'm I'm really interested in um, in, in seeing it through those eyes mm. as we go on. Well, we have I don't know we're just shy of halfway through this novel. I suppose we've got plenty still to talk about and plenty more big moments that we're just alluding to. Uh, and once we get to those, we'll be able to dig deep. We have uh, one episode left of the Anna Karenina conversation. Is that right? Or you've got the Q&A left, right? Just the Q&A. That's just right. Just the Q&A. And, and then, then after that, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, we're going to be uh, diving into Steinbeck's East of Eden, uh, which is an amazing book. And it's a little less long than Anna Karenina. So we won't have a little less long. (laughs) That says nothing about length right there. No, it's true. It's true. (laughs) But it's uh it's still long. So it's it's a good uh it's a good bonus bonus uh series. So if you would like to get access to that, or for example, if you would like to get access to Heidi's monthly columns, I think you probably have one coming up here soon, then mm-hmm. you get head up to closereads.substack.com to sign up for Close Reads HQ. Uh by the time this episode goes live, we'll have a conversation up there that uh, Heidi and I had on uh, Emily St. John Mandel's new book, Sea of Tranquility, which we both liked a lot. So we had a little quick look conversation on there. Um, I've got a post coming up soon, which is going to, it's going to mention that there are new editions of two books that I just want to drop here real quick. People will be excited about this. There is finally a new edition of C.S. Lewis's book on Paradise Lost. Um, oh, a preface to Paradise, a preface Lost. To Paradise Lost. There's a brand new edition of that uh, now available. Who published it? Um, oh, shoot. You're asking me questions Sorry. that I wasn't prepared for. I know, right? I'll mention, I that, we I'll mention that in my post. Uh, okay. And then also there's a brand new, really nice edition of uh, Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. So I'm going to mention both of those in, in a future post. And I'll post the covers and all that. So those are two things that I'm pretty excited about. Um, so there's lots you know of content. You about, really quick about Preface to Paradise Lost, which this is not a conversation about that. But <laughs> it has what I think are some very, very insightful comments and remarks from Lewis on the Aeneid and on Virgil and why he prefers Virgil to Homer, um, which I do not, but I respect Lewis a lot and his comments on it and randomly in a preface on Paradise Lost are worth the price of the book. So I'm going to put that out there. Okay. So closereads.substack.com for closereads.hq. Bonus pods, written content, plus you get to help us out a little bit. Um, I just want to shout out Logan because Logan makes these uh, these podcasts he's amazing. happen. Um, he's doing the daily poem and he's doing Withy Windle and he's doing close reads and bonus podcasts and all kinds of other stuff. So just want to, you know, occasionally need to shout out to him for, for all his post-production work. All right. Well, with that, for Heidi Witt and for Karen Swallow Pryor and for Tim, who's off getting ready to get married. Did you know uh, he got hit by a car? I did. I, are we allowed to talk about that? I did know that. <laughs> Yeah, we talked about it on... Yeah, right. (laughs) Okay, we could close it there if you want to. But yeah, Tim got hit by a car, but he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. He goes... He. he, I call him the other day to talk about the retreat that's coming up. And he goes, yeah, I'm leaving the doctor. And then I said... And we were talking about it afterwards. He's like, yeah, I'm healing okay. But the doctor said my leg's infected. So it's a good thing I went in. And I was like... Yeah, it's a Wait, good thing you happened, went in. Right? Just like, yes. Yeah, he sent me a picture of his leg. Me too. It's really gotten, frightening. Yeah. He was riding his bike he got, and he got hit yeah. by a car. He's fine. I mean, ish. But yeah. 
Well, let this be a lesson because I feel like avoiding being hit by a car is pretty easy in life. Like I've never really worried about that possibility. But things happen. But now, now I have yet one more thing to worry about. Or maybe the chances are even smaller because now one of my best friends just got hit by a car. And maybe it won't happen to me. Yeah, the odds. Yeah. Just him well, taking you know, one but, for the team. But you know, Karen got it. Karen got hit too a couple of years That's ago. Right. And like really by was, a bus. Yeah, it was yes. really, really horrible. I mean, she's had to Lord endure so mercy. much. So mm-hmm. um she has great so, soul. She is, and probably even greater because of it. Um, although I don't know if that's good theology. Um <laughs> <laughs> but uh with that, we should probably end this episode, but uh just want to shout out Tim, you know, Tim, he's, he got, he got knocked off his bike. He's okay, but he's getting married in like a week and a half. So shout out to Tim and to Galen and, you know, good luck on the final, final stages of all your planning. So everyone send him your best wishes and, and, and uh, your prayers and all those sorts of things that you send to people before they get married. Okay. So with that for Tim, for Karen and for Heidi, I'm David Gern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. 